Lord, it is so good to be in your house with your people. You are a great and mighty God, and you are worthy of our praise, and you're worthy of honor and adoration. We so often uh, are short-sighted in seeing the works of your hands, but God, we, we profess together today as a church family that you are altogether worthy of everything and every, uh, everything we have and every ounce of our being uh, giving to you in service. Lord, we thank you for your character, which is unchanging over time. And we thank you how that character is expressed through a variety of people and a variety of activities and circumstances. And even how your character is expressed in this book of Ruth. God, you meet us where we are, and you continue to mold us and change us. And so I pray that you would do that exact thing today. That as we continue in this great story of Ruth, Lord, that uh, for each person here, you would, uh, by the power of your spirit, touch them with the truth of your work, and that you would continue to grow us and shape us. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this morning's message, Listen to Your Mother-in-Law. Because after all, mother-in-laws get a bad rap, don't they? Do mother-in-laws get a bad rap? Yes? I wouldn't know. I've never had a mother-in-law. But I've always had this hunch that the general cultural consensus of mother-in-laws being nosy, controlling, stern intruders to the spouses of their children is somehow a bad rap. So to test my hunch, I decided to take an informal poll among some of the people of our church to hear their perspective of their mother-in-laws. This is what they said. My mother-in-law is as sweet as can be, and she wants everyone just to be okay. She's a wonderful lady, but she is just mixed up on some really important things. My mother-in-law was a jokester who loved to pick on you because she liked you. Another person said, my mother-in-law was very strong-willed and argumentative. But at the same time, she was also uninvolved, so she didn't have the right to be strong-willed and argumentative. But she's also going through her teenage years again, so... One of the godliest women I know, said one person, very compassionate. She is so awesome. Another person said, she has a huge heart, great intentions, knows how to step up when the heat is on. She's high maintenance and she doesn't know how to operate outside of crisis mode. And finally, one person said, very needy, but very loving. That is my mother-in-law. Mother-in-laws, we sure do love you. And that's kind of a fun segue to our text today in Ruth chapter 3, when the mother-in-law gives a very clear directive to her daughter-in-law. So I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to Ruth 3. It's on found on page 223 of the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, I would encourage you to take that copy home with you today. Let it be our gift to you. Uh, we believe God's word is powerful and that we are nourished by it, uh, not only here in church, but also in the quietness of our own homes. We continue today in this story of the book of Ruth. We've been here for a couple of weeks. And as we've been walking through the story, we've seen the mother, Naomi, and the daughter-in-law, Ruth, Naomi's husbands and her sons died. Her husband and her sons died. 
And this left her with this daughter-in-law named Ruth. And we've seen how Ruth has shown incredible character to Naomi as she clung to her, as she, uh, as she gave an oath to stick with her. And now, last week, as she was gleaning the fields for grain to provide for them both. And while gleaning the field, Ruth met a man named Boaz, the owner of the field. And last week we saw how Boaz was exceedingly generous in his care for her. And one of the biggest takeaways of chapter 2 was how God cares for the needy and blesses the righteous. And Boaz's generosity was certainly a sign of God's care and blessing for both Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. But as time has gone on, you can imagine how Naomi, this mother-in-law, is starting to feel. And so she decides to give some advice, some very direct advice to this daughter-in-law of hers, Ruth. And that's where we pick up the story. So let's look at chapter 3, and I'm going to read the whole thing in its entirety. It's only 18 verses, so stick with me as we go. This is what it says. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, being Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May the Lord be blessed, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. And, sh and he said, Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. 
The future is insecure. Naomi is thinking about her life. She's considering where she had come from and where she's going, and she's looking at this young daughter-in-law of hers. She's moved from this place of internal bitterness that we explored and is now looking for the rest for Ruth. What kind of life will she have after Naomi is gone? This woman is too much of a prize to let go on to be a lonely widow forever. So there's a sense in which you see at the beginning of this story that Naomi, this woman who was self-centered in her bitterness, is now starting to think and look out for the needs of those around her. And this is the way that a release from bitterness actually works. You move away from the me and you start to focus your thoughts and your attentions on those people around you. If you're here today and you've been thinking about bitterness as we've explored it the last couple of weeks and you're still trying to think about how you want to be pulled out of that dynamic, this is one simple piece of advice that you've probably heard again and again, but we always need to be reminded of. Take the attention off yourself and start investing yourself in the people around you. This is what Naomi does. And she does so, and as a result, she gives some advice. And the advice is, the advice is this. Ruth, you need to directly pursue Boaz. Now, we just read the scriptures a moment ago, and the story sounds almost crazy, doesn't it? Love is in the air, however. And when love is in the air, a variety of things can happen. For those of you who are married, do you remember what it was like to fall in love with your spouse? I mean, some of us are just very direct in these types of matters, but most of us go through this little dance, relationally speaking, back and forth, as we try to decipher whether or not these feelings that we have are mutual. Do you remember the dance that you had with your spouse? For some of you, it was a very long time ago. For others of you, it was just yesterday. Amy and I were in college, and I can remember seeing her from a distance. After a while, I got tired of just seeing her from a distance, and I'd heard that one of my friends had met her, and so I said, hey, Marcus, you've got to introduce me to that girl over there. And he did. And before long, we began to enter into this kind of relational dance where we would find ourselves, just happened to be in the same place at the same time on campus. And we would talk and we would laugh, but not too much. You gotta take these things slowly. I mean, after all, this was a dance. One day I mustered up enough courage to call her on the phone and ask her if she would go out with me. I was gonna show her parts of Chicago that she hadn't seen. We were gonna take a walk to Navy Pier. And so it was about three o'clock in the afternoon and I called her on the phone. And as she picked up the phone, she sounded kind of funny. I think she'd been sleeping. And so I said to her, oh, I'm sorry, did I wake you from a nap? No, she said, trying to hide what was actually happening. Why? It was stupid. It didn't really matter, but she didn't want to be perceived in a certain type of way because we were in the middle of this dance. One walk turned into many walks. 
One phone call turned into many phone calls. Love was in the air, and eventually the relationship began to blossom. A proposal for marriage became evident, and the rest is history. A long dance with two people who were falling in love. Love is in the air here in Ruth chapter 3. We have no idea how much time has passed between the end of chapter 2 and this account between Ruth and Boaz. We see that chapter 2 ends with the fact that Ruth is going to work both the barley and the wheat harvest, and she's going to continue to live with her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's probably a good couple of months that have gone by. And you can almost see the dance that's happening if you stop to think about it during those few months. You've witnessed Boaz's interest and his kindness to her. And you can see, you can almost hear him thinking, man, she looks good today over there gleaning that wheat. (laughs) And you can almost hear Naomi, I mean Ruth, saying to the other servant girls, oh, I hope he notices me today. And I hope, I hope, and I hope that he asks me to have lunch with them again. And the dance continued to go on and on. And this relational dance leads ultimately to a proposal by Ruth to Boaz on the threshing floor. Now to understand the scene properly, you need to understand really two things. Number one, that Boaz was a relative of Ruth's deceased husband. Do you get that? Boaz is one of the in-law relatives here. And this makes him, in ancient Israelite history, a kinsman redeemer. That is to say, he's a kinsman, he's a relative, but he also has certain rights in which he can redeem her. We remember, you saw at the end of chapter 2, we got this little glimpse, this little inkling after Ruth told Naomi everything that Boaz had done for them and how she blessed, how Naomi blesses Boaz before the Lord and then says, oh, and by the way, he's one of our redeemers. That is to say, she went on to explain to Ruth that this man has the right to redeem her and all of her husband's possessions and land and assume them into into his family. This does two things. Number one, it preserves the widow. (laughs) It gives her a husband. It gives her a chance for a future. It gives her security. And number two, it keeps the bloodline of the deceased husband moving forward. There's multiple purposes Involved, but Boaz was not under obligation to redeem. He didn't have to do it. But if he desired to, and both parties agreed, and there were no other redeemers that came to make a claim, he could do just that, and they could get married. The second thing you need to understand about this type of proposal is that its abnormal nature to us actually does have some traditional elements to it. Ruth and Naomi tells this young daughter-in-law, Ruth, how to play it. She's a wily old veteran, that Naomi. So she was supposed to go to the threshing floor late at night. And this is the place where the grain workers and even the owner of the land apparently would take the harvest of grain and they would throw it up in the air. The wind would blow away the chaff. The wind would blow away the stalks of of uh, the harvest, even a little bit closer, but the heaviest part of the plant, the seeds, would fall straight down. And so again and again and again, workers throwing up in the air, blowing away the chaff, gathering the seed. This would take sometimes days to reap the harvest. 
So following Naomi's advice, Ruth takes a bath. She puts on some of her perfume or anoints herself with scented oil. She puts on her best clothes and she waits until Boaz's day is done. Until he's eaten. Until he's had something to drink. Until he lies down to sleep. She sneaks in and makes her move. And as she does, exactly what Naomi said would happen, happened. She uncovers his feet in the middle of the night. The wind blows. He gets that little tickle on his toes, and he wakes up. <gasps> Who are you? This leads us to a very important piece of advice. Ladies, if you want to find a man and secure the deal, for crying out loud, take a shower. <laughs> Put on your best perfume, get on your best dress, and if you're really smart about it, wait till he's had a steak and a glass of wine before you go in for the kill. No, seriously, we see this proposal is odd to us, but make no mistake about it, it certainly contains an element of moral danger. This is a very sexually charged situation, and the temptation for that element was real. This was a real test of integrity. A father of a friend of mine once gave this great definition of integrity. He said, integrity is when you are the same person in every room that you are in. Integrity is when you are the same person in every room that you're in. There's no ounce of duplicity in you. You don't say one thing and do another. You don't say certain things in some company and not in other company. How's your integrity? How is your sexual integrity? Because what we will see is that a sign of growing relationship with God and the sign of blessing from God is a life that's lived with this sort of high character. Despite the fact that the scene is sexually charged, that's not Ruth's immediate goal. By approaching Boaz in the way that she did, she had one goal in mind, and this was marriage. And the love expressed here is mutual. Look with me at verse 9. Boaz awakes in the dark, and he says, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Her tone and her title is completely different with Boaz than it used to be. Earlier in the book, she had much less confidence and much less relational intimacy. She would refer to herself as a foreigner to him. She would refer to herself as a laborer to him. But now she refers to herself as his maidservant. The relationship has advanced, and she boldly calls him Redeemer, making very clear exactly what she wants. The idea of hesed pops up here again. As we talked about in chapter 1, hesed is this Hebrew word that encapsulates a number of ideas that we have words for in English. Love, faithfulness, loyalty, kindness, all of these things wrapped up into this one loaded word. And so we see here that after Ruth's proposal, Boaz responds in verse 10. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last act of kindness 
greater than the first, in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. You have made this last act of hesed even greater than the first. Her act of loving kindness toward her mother-in-law, Naomi, was incredible. The fact that she would cling to this widow among all other options in her life. This is Hesed expressed loyalty and faithfulness and loving kindness. But Boaz says that was phenomenal. But what you're doing right now is even more phenomenal. There are plenty of young men that she could have gone after or made herself available to. However, in looking for a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, she shows great honor to her deceased husband. She wants to see his line continue. And she also honors Boaz. He says, this is a great act of kindness toward me. Why? Well, because quite frankly, it mirrors his own unspoken desires. Far beyond physical attraction, far beyond the external, these two individuals saw something in each other Boaz tells Ruth that all the men in the town know that she is of noble character. If you read in the ESV, it says that she is a worthy woman. Boaz is referred to in this book as one who is a man of standing. Now, noble character and one of standing, it's the same root word. And what's going on here is that these two people are people of integrity. We all know that there's a right way and a wrong way to go about relationships, don't we? And if you're single here this morning, let me just speak directly to you for a moment. We live in a time, and there's a lot of different ways you can evaluate the potential for a spouse. But the external, the flashy, the physical tend to be the ways that our culture is most often evaluating first and foremost. But if you are single and you want to get married someday, then take this example as one in the many long lines of examples in the Bible that says character is of high value in who you marry. If you're a parent and you have children who are approaching that age, don't be afraid to evaluate the character of their potential mates because it is of higher value. It will see you through the ups and the downs. And the Lord blesses that type of reality. So again, we see this story is sort of coming to its conclusion. We're moving along. God, in his providential care, is being uh, generous to Ruth and to Naomi. And he's using uh, the loving kindness and the loyalty of these two people to enact that care. They are mirroring his values, both the character of Ruth, both the character of Boaz. And even Naomi continues to be cared for. Look with me at the end of the story where it says that Boaz, early in the morning, gives Ruth six measures of barley because he does not want her to go back empty-handed. Naomi, the mother-in-law who struggles with bitterness, who proclaims to everybody that she is empty And now Boaz is saying, I don't want her to be empty. Don't go back to her empty-handed. So we see God's directive care. But more than that, this story points us to something much greater. Beyond loving kindness, 
beyond providence. This story points us to the greater reality of redemption. And if there's a big idea that emerges from this book of Ruth, it's something like this, that God's redemptive work secures our future. God's redemptive work secures our future. You see, Ruth functions as a type or an example of all humanity. A person has no discernible future ahead of her. No matter how hard she worked, no matter who she lived with, no matter what she did, she was going to be poor and desolate and a stranger in a strange land. At her core, Ruth was vulnerable. And Boaz knew this about her, and so we saw his blessing in chapter 2. May God repay you, the Lord whose, under whose wings you have sought refuge. She was vulnerable, and she needed refuge. Every single one of us find ourselves in this same condition, spiritually speaking. Our sin has left us alone. It's left us feeling as if we are abandoned. No amount of work can right the ship of our lives or change the status that we have. Like Ruth, we are the ones with no hope and no future, spiritually speaking. And as soon as we realize that our spiritual condition has put us in this place, we begin to look toward a future. We're desperate for something or someone to change the course for us. Now, some of us may try to avoid it. Some of us will tell ourselves again and again and again, oh, it's, it's all going to be okay. I don't have to think too hard about spiritual things or about God. It'll just sort of work out in the end. And in our pride, <laughs> some of us actually believe that. Others of us surround ourselves with different people or causes or goods that make us feel better about ourselves in an attempt sort of mask this lingering reality that overhangs. But in the quiet moments, when all the world slows down, we are no different than the widow sitting in her dark room, wondering what's going to become of us. But then she meets a redeemer. And Boaz functions as a type or an example of a greater redeemer that is to come. And that is the redeemer, Jesus Christ. Not only a man of upright standing, not only one who owns field after field, but this Jesus Christ is not only a kind master, he's also a kinsman. Fully God, yes, but fully man, Yes, and as a kinsman, he understands our temptations. He understands our sufferings. He understands what makes you, you. He understands even those temptations that each of us have, the difficulty that we have in submitting ourselves to God. Like Boaz, he's able to make the decision to redeem, but he's not obligated to do it. He does so out of genuine, loving kindness. And Ruth knows this. And so she recalls Boaz's words about God spreading his wings over her in her vulnerable state, needing refuge. And thus, in her marriage proposal, she says to him in the quietness of the night, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. 
without a redeemer, you are vulnerable beyond measure. The price of your sin is one that you cannot pay. You need someone to spread their wings over you. You need the care and kindness and protection of a redeemer. But to have this redemption, there's a very real sense in which you need to be like Ruth. She casts aside her pride. She casts aside any illusion of securing the future for herself. She casts aside cares about how others would perceive her. She recognizes that she's vulnerable, and in a vulnerable position on the cold, dark, threshing floor, she simply says, redeem me. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The weight of your sin, the weight of trying to figure out your eternal future on your own, all of these things are burdensome in their nature, and Jesus says, I can take them away. Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him or redeemed through him. Because, my friends, God's redemptive work secures our future. God's redemptive work secures our future. And so, you stand in front of a redeemer, each and every one of us, that says, I will spread my wing over you. And the question then becomes, are you willing to be redeemed?